Hello and welcome to the Room of Lives. I'm your host, Neil. Today we are talking with Hannah Lunkenheimer, a psychology PhD student at the University of Texas at Austin, who studies a very intriguing topic, death. A cautionary note before we begin. In this episode, we are going to be talking about death and suicide, including personal accounts, so please decide whether or not to continue listening depending on your own sensitivities to these topics. We begin today's conversation with Hannah's life story. In high school, she lost a friend to suicide, and her small rural community reacted in a way that she found quite strange and confusing. It made her ask, why is death such a taboo topic, and set her off on her journey of studying the perception, beliefs, and rituals surrounding death across different human cultures. We then discuss the topics that Hannah studies in her research, such as the coexistence of biological and folk beliefs about death, and how beliefs about the afterlife have changed over history. Why do some cultures keep death so removed from the living, whereas other cultures have a much more open and even celebratory relationship with it? How did we inherit these notions about death? And what is the place of death in a burgeoning capitalistic society? After this, on a more personal front, Hannah and I share what we feel and expect about our own deaths and afterlife and about our different types of grieving. I share my own strange relationship with death as exemplified during deaths among my friends and family. At the close of our conversation, I ask Hannah for her thoughts on suicide, assisted suicide, and those with suicidal intentions. Okay. So, Hannah, thanks for coming on my podcast. Yeah. And from this point on, let's forget that you're on my podcast. Yeah. <laughs> so, tell me a little bit about, like, your background, like, your, your, where were you born, you know, what was childhood like, and how did you, how do you get from being born to being here? Perfect. Yeah. Well... Uh, I'm going to have to go a little fast because that's a lot to cover, but I'm from San Antonio. Um, I'm a huge Spurs fan, Mm -hmm. and um, I am born and raised in Texas. I've lived here for uh, ever, Um, and I uh, grew up with my mom. My parents got divorced when I was really young. My dad um, is Mexican, and my mom is white, and I think that that's important to uh, my identity, um, just, you know, later developing my interests, but, um, in high school, I lost a friend to suicide, and I became really interested in, like, you know, my own death, um, and also just suicide more generally, and I came to college thinking that I wanted to do clinical psychology and approach dying, um, and suicide from that route, and so, you know, did a lot of research that was, um, related to things like that, did, um, some, like, community work, uh, in a mental health space, 
worked in the counseling center a bit as well. Um, and then when I graduated, I couldn't find a job for like four months. So that was fun. Um, and, and then I got a job as a social worker and that part of that aspect or that job had a lot of like mental health aspects and it was really difficult, um, for me. And I thought that I had all of the resilience in the world to study, you know, people in crisis, um, all the time. But when I actually had that hands-on experience, I realized, eh, you know, maybe that wasn't for me. Um, and then my now advisor, um, actually gave me a call and offered me a position, uh, as a lab manager and, um, you know, said that she thought that I would be really good at research, um, you know, making that my career, which I had not ever thought of doing myself. That kind of just seemed like, well, that's not something I would do. <laughs> well, what was this? What was your current advisor researching? Uh, it's my uh, current advisor. She was uh, studying kind of like the bio biological beliefs and folk biological beliefs about dying um, in children. Um, but her research spans a much greater topic, um, and I guess cultural variation, mm. uh, a little bit more broadly. So, and she knew, she knew you somehow to give you this yes, call. Yes. Yes. So yeah, backing up a little bit in undergrad, mm -hmm. I, I took a class called the cognitive science of religion with her, um, which was really eye opening and, you know, the interest that cognitive science could have, um, in ways that I didn't really expect before. Um, but it wasn't something that I was like, that's something that I could do. It was like, oh shit, that's pretty cool. Um, but in my head, like I think as a first gen, I don't know, research was just not, it was something I did in college, but like it wasn't realistically for me. I couldn't make that a career. Yeah. Um, but yeah. And so. that was at UT Austin? Yeah. So you did your undergrad in UT Austin? Yes, I've been I here forever. Yeah, yeah, I see you. <laughs> um, yeah, just, it keeps pulling me back. But mm -hmm. yeah, so I've known my advisor for about, I think, six or seven years, and I'm a second year in the program, so, mm -hmm. um, so yeah, um, but yeah. Yeah, okay, so, and then you joined this research group yes. two years ago. Yes. I see and as a graduate student yeah. um so when she when i was a social worker i was kind of getting you know mentally exhausted just with all of the crises um i had one family um where one of my individuals on my caseload tried to stab me with a butter knife um i did multiple home visits where like chickens and like animal feces were laying around it was a lot of like cps reporting it was a lot yeah. <laughs> um for me to handle so I, uh, I was getting very mentally drained and it seemed like she called it like the perfect time because I was looking for other jobs, trying to get out of there just because it was a lot, uh, it's a lot on your, on yeah. your health. But do you have any remaining interests in, you know, it seemed like at some point you were kind of interested in helping people who were having like like mental well-being difficulties yes that's kind of like the clinical psychologist but do you have any remaining interest in going back there anymore or do you just want to do research so i'm glad it? that you asked that so i have a part of like the core 
goal of what I'd like to do is work directly to apply my research in community settings. So if I was able to do my own research, but also instead of just publishing to a journal, meeting with the community, whatever organization, uh, like nonprofit, um, regardless of the health behavior or like educational setting, if I could work with them and like help them interpret my data and be like, here's the intent that my future research or, you know, future implementation section, here's what I mean by that. Because yeah. I think that it's such a barrier for academics to publish all of these findings and papers and it's, it's all great stuff. Right. But mm -hmm. then the people who are actually supposed to implement it don't know how to implement it. Yeah. Um, so yeah. yeah, but I do have an interest in like directly improving service delivery, whether that's education or health. Yeah. Um, yeah. Mm -hmm. So I want to get back to the things that you mentioned about, you know, losing a friend to suicide, and mm -hmm. then it made you start thinking about death. And but before that, I want to ask you about you know this topic of studying cultural variation. Mm -hmm. So. Yeah, what does that look like? I don't even have any idea what that entails, like what exactly you're studying. It entails a lot of collaboration, which is great because I love meeting new people um, and understanding their perspectives that I'm just oblivious to. And, uh, you know, I just, there's so much that you don't know, right? Um, and it's really nice to have many minds meeting together uh, to talk about whatever they're interested in, like we're doing here. Um, but it involves a lot of collaboration, um, and research is a very long process, and it's time-consuming. Um, and when you're studying variation across cultures, you have to account for things that you might not when you're just studying one population. So things like that are um, making sure that you have local research assistants that are willing and able to do, you know, the data collection that you're wanting to do. Um, you have to think about like translation processes and like that takes a long time. So if you have X, you know, procedure that you're going to implement and you're studying 10 different cultures, you have to get 10 different translations of that protocol. Yeah. Um, so that's a process. There's also um, this is something that I was not at all aware of or thinking, but um, some locations don't have access to Wi-Fi or there's crazy problems that come up in data collection where like an, a, it's too humid in the environment and like the Amazon when you're working with a really isolated population mm -hmm. and your tablet doesn't turn on because all of the moisture, mm -hmm. you know, gets in there and it like messes up. So just... There's just a lot of like this is already actually happening. Yes. Okay. And the, it's just things that I've had to learn um, when you're actually working on a cross-cultural project. Um, so aside from all of the interesting variation that you get with the data, just even implementing the idea mm -hmm. is a lot of work. Um, but yeah, so just What are some examples of uh, questions or topics that you have studied across cultures? Okay, so uh, one of them is norm uh, is generally about like how children learn across cultures, like I guess is the more general 
like umbrella question there. Um, and there we look at like types of schooling, types of parenting, resources that are at the school, um, kind of things like that. And then uh, another, you know, question that we look at is like, how do science and religion impact education through like formal schooling systems? So a lot of places in the world have schooling systems that are run by religious organizations. Um, And we're kind of trying to see how that impacts content, um, cognition, a bunch of things within different field sites that we're working in. Um, And then I think the last, you know, area that I have with, um, in regards to like actually doing the cross-cultural work, um, is studying uh, afterlife beliefs specifically. Mm. Um, and that's kind of, it is my main interest and in my my child. <laughs> um, if I had to, to pick a favorite child, then that would, that would be it. Um, but yeah, so those are like the three questions. And I just, honestly, I just look at uh, how afterlife beliefs historically kind of have changed over time and just documenting the variation in ways that haven't been documented before. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of like, uh, uh, before that, the question that I had was, you know, so for example, if you're looking at this question of how, how the teaching of science might be impacted by the kind of schooling that a person receives, like, was it religious schooling or not? I feel like this is, this might be like, you know, it's kind of like a culturally sensitive topic to mm-hmm. research and report about. So yeah. do you feel like a, here's this, like, additional issue of, like, you kind of have to, like, tiptoe around cultural sensitivities as you're doing research and, and publishing? Definitely. I, I definitely think that it is a sensitive topic in... Um, some cultures more than others, and that is, I think it's an issue just generally in the field, and I think that it's important that we do work with these populations, and, uh, like, if we're going to be, you know, studying them, Um, and part of, like, what I think our team does a good job of is, like, forming relationships within the community, so we meet with community leaders, um, school teachers, members of organizations. So before data collection even begins, you have to build up that relationship. So that way they're understanding, you know, Mm. the implications that this could have for them. Mm. Um, And I would say most of the time, if not all of the time, the research assistants really enjoy working, you know, doing this type of work. And they're um, really keen on like helping helping us, you know, collect the data because they're the the heroes actually doing it in a lot of the communities. So it involves a lot of rapport building before. um, And it's really fun because you get to know, you know, you stay with the same family when you do field work and you get to know them really well. And it's it's a really good experience, I think. It's like very people-focused. Yeah, 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 Yeah. people first. And if, if we overstep our, you know, our boundary in in that space whatever space whatever site we're in um sometimes the community leader is like nope 
that's you know yeah (laughs) yeah um so it is like a back and forth and it's just communicating but that's how you get to learn other cultures right otherwise there's no there's no collaboration across uh cultures which is unfortunate so uh yeah it's really really interesting nice okay yeah going back to the thing that you mentioned about you know you lost a friend to suicide Mm -hmm. and then you started thinking about um death yeah, could you elaborate a little bit on, yeah, what what did it make you think about and what kind of perspective did, yeah. For sure. Um, so I feel like I grew up very privileged um, in my community and I also was not, I guess, exposed to very many deaths before that happened. Mm-hmm. So I had all four grandparents, both my parents. I'm an only child, so I, you know, didn't lose a sibling. Um, I had maybe attended one funeral of a great aunt that I was so far removed from. Um, so I wasn't really, I wasn't thinking about my own death at all. I was not exposed to any close member's death. Um, of my family or my friends. So when that happened, I was uh, about to start my senior year of high school, and that is when I was like, whoa, I have to attend a funeral of, like, this is not supposed to happen, right? Like, that was my first reaction when it happened, because, well, it was also, like, sudden, but that's when I really started thinking, wow, like, everybody that I know, at least my belief, is going to die, and how am I supposed to, like, digest that <laughs> and, uh, I guess kind of, like, just be able to live with the fact that, like, yeah, I'm gonna die eventually, too, um, so that was really what got me interested, I guess that's when I realized wait, I was wait, gonna wait. die. Before the interest, yeah, yeah, what was that feeling like? Was it, like, scary? Was it... I think my town, I am from a very rural small town and so when that happened I think it was like whoa 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 it's like stuff like that doesn't happen that's like stuff I hear about in on the news or like I've read about that in books but I I'd never even thought that somebody that I knew I guess Mm. could take an action like that so one I was even surprised that that happened in real life let alone it happened indirectly to you know in my life Um, and so, yeah, I was, I was very shocked. I was confused, I think a little bit just because I was like, this, this just doesn't happen, I think, Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know, and I was also confused because we were only 17, like Mm -hmm. that was, we're so young. Um, and, and then I started thinking of questions like about suicide because I had never thought like asked questions about it um and that's how i developed an interest in in that um yeah yeah it's kind of interesting that this kind of a traumatic incident Mm -hmm. had the effect i feel like for a lot of people it would make them just kind of even more repulsed from just thinking about the topic at all because it was traumatic yeah but it made you want to go in its direction yeah and that is definitely the response that, like, our local community had. I felt like I was 
wanting to dig deeper into it, like not the personal situation, but like just dig deeper into the idea, whereas it was like such a taboo thing yeah. and it was so, I don't know, like tiptoey. And I was like, why the hell, like this yeah. happened? Why are we, why do we have to tiptoe? <laughs> like, I don't understand yeah. why we can't just have a conversation about it. Um, and I think that that's a broader issue of like, why it's so weird to talk about these things for some people. Um, I guess I won't say issue, but, like, it is something that mm. occurs outside of just my little bubble. But, um, yeah, yeah. but, yeah. Ah, I feel like, so, so, yeah, so, like, before this thing happened, like, yeah, life was just happening yeah. as usual. And I feel like after this kind of very intense thing happened, it caused this like this behavior patterns in all of these people in this community yeah and you were like whoa this is how humans deal with this yeah there's so and much I going think, on there i think my first i mean because i'm don't get me wrong we were all devastated but my first instinct was be, was to be like okay how can we best like celebrate her life that she was able to have right like let's not, I mean, I gave myself time to grieve, of course, but I also mm. wanted to, you know, create this space as like, I don't know, as like positive outlooking as, you know, I could because maybe that was like a, a grieving or coping strategy for me. I mean, I don't, I don't really know. I'm not going to like put a label to it, but that could have been like how I needed to best grieve. Mm. Um, but yeah, I really wanted to like celebrate celebrate that yeah. like moment uh as best as i could but i'm interested if like your s specific exposure with i don't know like if you're comfortable talking about it i'm sure yeah, yeah, yeah. um but yeah like if you have had i don't know a special experience with yeah i feel like that. my relationship with death has always been kind of Strange. I don't know how strange it is actually because it's one of those topics that are kind of taboo. People don't talk yeah. about it. Yeah. So I don't really know how unique or strange it is. Yeah. But it has been always kind of like intense. Um, so for one thing, when I was, I have never had like a normal reaction to other people dying around okay. me. Um, one of a, a childhood memory is, so in India, someone from my mother's Someone in my mother's family died. I don't know who it was. I was pretty young. And in India, what they do is they bring the body to from the hospital to the home mm -hmm. so that people can gather around mm -hmm. it and then they grieve. And then they take it to the place the, the uh, and then they burn it mm -hmm. for Hindus. So mm -hmm. my memory is of this house where so many people are just gathered around this body. Mm -hmm. And I didn't exactly know what was going on. But... Oh, also the other thing is, like, grieving is, like, a very vocal and loud and expressive thing in India. Mm. People are just, like, wailing, okay? Was that communicated to you as a child, or were you just like, why are these people wailing? I don't yeah. really understand. That, yeah, that's I didn't it. understand. And these are people that, the rest of my life, I've never seen them have these expressions yeah. on their faces, but they're just, like, yeah. wailing. Yeah. And I just <laughs> found it funny. I found that funny because I didn't understand what was yeah. going on. Yeah, I, I mean, like, if it's not wow. communicated to you, you're like, what? Yeah. What is so happening? So I was just sitting there and I started like just smiling. Yeah. Because it was funny to me. And I remember my sister looked at me and gave me possibly the 
the archetypal dirty look oh, that I go to. The side eye was like. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I was like, oh, I must be doing something wrong. But yeah. I don't get it. Um, but I guess maybe part of it was that I did not immediately into the 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 atmosphere of the grieving did not automatically permeate me emotionally mm-hmm. or I would not have had this disconnect. Yeah. Um, and then later on, so when I was in undergrad, I guess, um, there was this girl that, you know, she and I were like kind of interested in each other while it was long distance. And, um, I remember I was with my friend and we were watching a movie or something in a movie theater and I get a call from her mom and she's sobbing on the phone. She said, Oh yeah. Um, girl she just died she was just run over by a truck Mm -hmm. and once again i just didn't know how to respond uh it was like i felt just this kind of blankness i was like okay well wow i don't seem to be feeling any emotions um yeah and that was like the second data point where i was like i don't seem to be feeling the things that other people feel yeah uh, about people close to them dying and then I've run simulations in my mind multiple times of how I think I would react when people like close to me die yeah and I end up feeling like I don't think I'm going to have a very strong reaction but it doesn't mean that I'm not connected to these people yeah no and I just couldn't like figure out what that is and it's kind of like a taboo thing to talk about to say to people hey I don't think I'm affected by people dying yeah you were a psycho so i haven't gone around and talked with people about this and then several years ago my mom died and i was blank again all those shortly after she died and the thing that i remember feeling was that were you sorry were you already here no i went back to india okay okay uh when she fell ill i went back to okay and yeah so after she passed away i remember thinking most of what i'm feeling is not really true grief and devastation or anything like that Mm -hmm. most of what i'm feeling is just this struggle to try and this struggle with between how I'm actually feeling and how I'm expected to feel. That's like the pressure from society of how I'm expected to feel about how my mom, um, yeah, you know, how I should react to my mom's yeah. death is stronger. And as long as there is an expectation, I feel like I can't truly know what I really feel. Yeah. Because that expectation is distorting my emotions. So under those conditions, what I feel most strongly is to try and just isolate myself completely from other people and just see what I like actually feel. And whatever I actually feel, I try not to guilt myself. Oh, no, that's, that's how you feel. Yeah, that's how you're, you're processing it. And I, I do think that, I know you briefly mentioned that uh, you feel like it is a taboo thing to say like, well, I don't necessarily have the same reactions that you know, most people 
have, but I guarantee that there are a lot more people who might have similar, like, I don't know, processes that happen after they do lose somebody. They just are probably thinking the same thing, right? Like, I'm not, you know, society's telling me that I need to attend the funeral and shed a tear. So, like, I'll I'll do that. You know, who knows, you know, what people's grieving or how people process someone's death, um... It's hard to know what that looks like. So I definitely don't think that it's crazy. Um, And I feel like it's something that might be more prevalent than we think. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I personally came to the same conclusion. I I don't call myself crazy. I'm like, this is just the reaction that I'm having. I can tell it's pretty clear that this is just the authentic reaction I have. Um, The questions that I had, though, was... I still had some lingering questions that have nothing to do with other people was why am I feeling this way? There are two options. I was like, I actually don't feel very emotionally strongly about this. Or I feel so strongly about this that I can't handle it and somehow it's just being suppressed. And uh, shortly afterwards I actually kind of ran away from home under a false pretext I didn't run away from home just a couple days after my mom passed away. I told my family, I'm going to go somewhere and I'm going to go to my, like, whatever, the college where I used to go to okay, in India. Yeah. But I actually didn't go there. I went and hung out with a friend and her friends for a couple of days because I just wanted to be away from this um, kind of ecosystem of family and relatives and they're, I felt like they're all kind of expecting me to be a certain way. So would you say that your grieving is best done alone or would you say that... Yeah. Okay, okay. Yeah, yeah. But I didn't even go there to grieve. I just went there to just get away from all of this and to just, you know, just spend some time. But I but I think it's interesting that you say that you didn't go there to grieve. So maybe yeah. that wasn't your intent, but would you say yeah. that it's fair that, like, maybe that is your grieving thing to, well, like... I'll tell you what happened. Yeah. So I reached this place, and this is this was just two days after my mom died. Okay. And um, then I'm hanging out with these guys, and I don't know, like they're drinking alcohol and they're smoking pot, and they don't know anything, okay? They don't know. They don't know your anything. mom just yeah, passed, yeah. okay. No. And as I got a little bit high and drunk, I suddenly realized that this torrent of emotions, of sadness, is rushing up from my belly towards my chest really coming up my throat and towards my head i'm like oh my god yeah it's coming it's coming and i was like none of these people know anything what is it gonna look like yeah so i tried to tell my friend there i was like hey can i talk to you for a little bit just real quick outside and i can... real quick let me just throw this bomb on <laughs> <Yeah>. you <laughs> and it's just rising i'm like i've only got like a uh, minute two yeah minutes. And she's like, oh, just, we're just all hanging out yeah. over here. Let's just, I was like, oh my God, no. And then they just started bawling. Yeah. And everyone just stopped whatever they were doing. Like, what's going on? And I said, oh, well, yeah, my mom died yeah. like two days ago. And they just couldn't believe it. They couldn't believe it. Uh, that I had just been keeping a lid on that. And it didn't feel like I had been keeping a lid on that. Yeah. So after that happened, I really thought about it. I was like, wow, so does that mean that these emotions that other people have about death also exist in me, but they're stronger, so they're suppressed? And somehow that intoxication took away the inhibition and it just 
That's or, fascinating. Or I was like, you know, sometimes when you get like pretty intoxicated, you do get more emotional about certain things yeah. that you otherwise don't. Yeah. So then the question basically becomes, which is the authentic mm. feeling when I'm sober or when I'm intoxicated? And that's, I feel, a somewhat arbitrary decision. Um, so, yeah. But the other thing that I will say is that in regular life, I really think about my mom. But... She keeps coming back in my dreams. Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. So I don't know what all this is. I mean, about. I don't I don't know what yeah. that means either, but I do think that um so my partner has similar reactions to death um like that you're you explained having. So um I think that he does you know, feel those connections and does grieve, but his way looks completely different than mine. Like, I need to sit and cry for an entire day, and that's, I know that crying is not necessarily, like, might not seem productive, but that's productive for me because I'm, like, that's how I grieve. Um, so I usually, you know, cry, let myself, like, just the equivalent of, like, wailing out, um, and I usually like to do that alone. Um, and I have this interest in, in people feeling the need to, like, share things immediately. And, and I feel like I find myself doing that sometimes. Um, so, like, when somebody dies, people feel the need to update somebody, like, you know, immediately. Like, the whole mm -hmm. world, the whole web. Mm -hmm. Um... And I find that so interesting, and that's partially because my partner, that is not their reaction at all. Like, he's usually like, let's just deal with this, you know, because it's affecting us right now. Like, it doesn't matter that our friends know, like, let's just be in the moment. And he's really brought an outside perspective, right, because I've only known my grieving and... Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, but just seeing how he processes it and how he approaches the same experience or the same situation from such a different angle um, is really interesting. Um, so yeah, but he, he does grieve similarly. Like, he doesn't have outward emotion. He's like, well, I mean, it happened and, and we're going to like, you know, remember yeah. good memories and, you know, celebrate this. And, uh, I think that I try to incorporate that a little bit more because I do want to, you know, mm -hmm. I don't know, incorporate some of his grieving style in, in my life, but I will sit there for an entire day and cry yeah. probably, but yeah. But yeah. So what are your thoughts on these norms that different cultures have surrounding the processing and perception of death like you know like you were saying like it seemed like such a taboo to be talking about death and how people are feeling about death when your friend passed away mm -hmm. and then you know some cultures it's like a very grim thing we don't want to be reminded of it yeah and then i feel like you kind of do like the like the minimum little bit possible someone like puts them dresses them up and puts them in a in, in a box and you come and do the thing and then it's like done and everyone wears black mm -hmm. and you do the thing and then you, whereas in some other cultures it's not so much of a taboo at all 
you know, it's like a colorful celebration yeah. almost. Yeah. You've got uh, La Dia <laughs> de los de, Muertos, de los mm-hmm. Muertos, which is like a very colorful and very overt, conspicuous celebration. Yeah. Some people have the skeletons of their ancestors stored in their house and they'll bring those out. Yep. Which some other people in some other cultures, just from my own experience, it was this um, landlady I had and she was talking about this experience of having visited some people who will bring out the skeletons of their dead and she was like, oh my God, that's crazy. Yeah. Uh, yeah, what are your thoughts on this very intense norms? Yeah. So that? going back to my, that... Uh, my friend who died by suicide, my, once I did my, you know, crying for 24 hours, my first instinct was like, how are we going to celebrate? Right. And like I said, my community, I don't know, like did want to celebrate her life, but I feel like I wanted to like cheer, you know, for her because yeah, that was just my reaction. And I feel like I didn't get pushback, but I felt like I couldn't express what I wanted to do because that wasn't the norm at all. And when I started looking at other cultures, not even like outside of the state, cause I don't mean that by like culture. I mean like other cultures and how they do celebrate death. And like, of course they're grieving, but like they just turn this life event into a celebration. And once I, you know, just, I guess had that exposure I was like my reaction isn't weird at all actually mm-hmm. like I think that they're being <laughs> weird the way that they're handling it um mm-hmm. so then uh I guess I kind of realized that and like put that on the back burner and then when I started developing like my research questions I was like why why is death such a taboo mm-hmm. sad thing I'm interested in like First off, death rituals, meaning the way you care for the body, the types of conversations that go on, just like how people ritualize um, death. I'm really interested in how that's passed on through generations. So like you were saying, you're a child at a funeral in India and people are acting a certain way. They didn't communicate to you. They probably... like. You know how parents are sometimes want to protect their children and think that it's not like age appropriate, yeah. but you're sitting there wondering what the heck is happening in this experience. So I'm really interested in why why parents don't think that that's like an age appropriate thing to communicate with children. Like why yeah. why is even in cultures that uh, set, do celebrate death why can that not start at the age of two, for example? Um, So I I am interested in, like, looking at why why can't we we talk to children about it? I mean, of course, maybe the language is, like, a little adapted um, Mm -hmm. and made, like, age-appropriate, but I'm really interested in that uh, as well. I got a little off of a tangent. I don't remember where my original points were. Uh, Far removed from death. Yeah, yeah. Yes. so I was just, uh, yeah, I was just wondering about what are your thoughts on these, you know, different, very intense Yes, norms. yes, yes. Yeah, some, um, in some societies it's like, you know, just like remove, yes. the, remove the death and the terminally ill and the sick from society. Yes. And just let the rest of the highly polished 
machine just keep on doing its thing. So, historically in America, there has been a huge bump in the funeral industry. Um, like, I will say over the last hundred years, the funeral industry has just boomed the same way, like, the wedding industry, you know, um, all of, like, the major life events. Yeah. Uh, but the funeral industry specifically. So, historically, maybe not as directly involved as some other cultures, like in Indonesia, uh, or, uh, like, cultures in South America, but we were more directly exposed to the physical body than we are now. Mm. Um, and I think that that is something that has really impacted people more than they realize. Um, and I wish I could talk to like my great, 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 great grandmother or whatever to see how her experience was, um, mm -hmm. you know, to have a conversation like this because I feel like we are just so far removed from the entire process. Like you said, even before people die, like we put people in homes yeah. and maybe visit them once a month, even though they're down the street and they deal with that. And then they die. And then I call somebody, they pick up the body. Somebody at the coroner's office is the one actually changing. Like, yeah, I might've picked out the outfit that they wanted or, you know, brought that to them. But I don't see the body. Mm -hmm. I don't see them. I see the body in a state that's weirdly le as if they're still living. Yeah, you know, like, like when you up. open the box. Yeah, I'm yeah. like, why is why is she wearing lipstick? <laughs> like, I mean, like that just is not, I don't know. Um, and I think part of that is just so that way your last image of them before they are buried or cremated is like, I don't know, how you want to remember them. I'm not really sure. That's just, I'm just, you know, making guesses. But, uh, but yeah, so we're so far removed from the process that it seems, at least to me, artificial. And I don't think that we're able to grieve as in a healthy way as we are able to, mm -hmm. if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. Um, because I think tangibly dealing with that and, like, physically getting your hands on things and, like, physically being a part of that process I think is really beneficial for some people. Maybe, mm -hmm. you know, not everybody, of course, has to participate, but I think it would be beneficial for a lot of people to grieve that way because you're you're caring for the body and you're more directly involved and like for the people that don't want to, they can grieve in their own way. But for the systematic process to not even allow people who need to have, you know, mm -hmm. tangible grieving, mm -hmm. I think that that's a huge barrier. I yeah, think. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. According to like Hindu rituals where the dead are burned and not buried. Yeah. It actually has to be like, like a next of kin, like the uh, oldest child mm -hmm. who has to set the body on fire, mm -hmm. and then they have to take a stick and smash the skull. Yeah. Of their own parent. Yeah. And there are, I mean, there are many rituals, uh, like across different cultures. So, like um, in Indonesia, there's the Tanataraja, or Tanataraja, I'm not really sure how to pronounce it, but they um, actually store their bodies 
um, kind of just in a, in a way for them to remove them once a year. They are able to like clean the body, maybe change the clothes, give them a little cigarette if they, you know, like to smoke. Um, and to me that like re recurring ritual is a lot more powerful than me visiting a gravesite every year. Um, and I feel like those two processes are similar, but have very different effects on people mentally. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. So why do you think that there exists this strong taboos? Is it, I feel like it must have to do with the fear and discomfort that we have with death as a society. It's just a reflection of how we perceive death, that we have taboos around what happens when people die. I think that, again, has, I don't think it's always been like that in, in a lot of cultures. Um, Partially, it comes from what your parents, you know, tell you about death because a lot of the times that conversation does come up. And if your parents are teaching you, like, you know, people are sad and when they use vague behavior, like, grandpa's off in a better place. Yeah. Or, you know, like, just the way that... I'm not saying it's only, like, parenting at mm-hmm. all. Uh, I just mean, like, it starts with that. Yeah, definitely. It starts yeah. with that. And... Yeah, we learn how to perceive things to a crucial extent based on how we saw our parents. Yeah, parents, caregivers, like just yeah. the people that we surround ourselves with, which is why I think when I was in my small hometown, my view was so narrow. Like there was, there's one funeral home. Yeah. It looks like awful on the out, like it looks like a prison. It's not very yeah. appealing mm-hmm. and... You know, every time someone dies, it's like, oh my gosh, and there's just such a negative reaction. Um, and again, I, I'm not saying that only positive reactions here. That's not what I'm saying. But it's almost like it's more work to celebrate or to, you know, not react negatively. And I think that it's just over time, we've taken one step back. And then we've taken another step back, like, from the actual body. So at first, maybe it was just, um, you know, we we called, what is that, 911. Or, I don't know who you call, actually. I should look that up. But we called somebody to pick up the body and take them. And then we started putting them in end-of-life care. And then we also have hospice. And then, like, there are... So many steps that we're just getting farther mm. and farther and farther. And there are other cultures that have remained yeah. directly with it. And I think that their perspectives on dying are a lot clearer, a lot earlier on. And not that it's not traumatic, but I think that some of the traumatic reactions that like Western cultures have maybe could be dealt with in a more healthy way yeah. uh, with the hands-on, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. the closer relationship, I guess, with, with it. Um, yeah. yeah. Um, so do you have any specific memories of rituals that you've engaged in at all? I'm just interested because you talked about your family members that are, you know, that were doing rituals. Do you 
Or would you engage in those rituals or no? Yeah, I think this partly has to do with my personality. Mm. That, okay, so um, grieving for me is a very private thing. And yeah, like it's it's not, yeah, grieving about something is very private. I've yeah. noticed that um, like talking about, it's not like, okay, for example, it's not like I don't feel anything about my mom dying. Yeah. But I noticed that even with close friends, it's quite difficult for me to actually express and go into the vulnerability of my emotions. Mm -hmm. So most of it just happens internally. Yeah. And I view these rituals as being kind of like these... Signals? Shared experiences and signals. Yeah. Um, and I find it something kind of like... Like it just takes away all authenticity for... Yeah, I feel like whatever I would exhibit there would mostly be some kind of like a theatrical performance rather mm -hmm. than my actual emotions. And I want to really protect my emotions from yeah. that exhibitionism. So I don't think I would want to be part of any... Outward. Yeah, outward. And, but I, I'm forced to be part of it because, you know, th this is the cultural expectation. Yeah. And I feel like the entire time that I was doing all of these things and so many people were visiting our house and things were happening yeah. and you go and blah, blah, I felt like I was just kind of going through the motions and playing out this role and during that entire time not actually getting any time to process my real emotions yeah. because they were being substituted by what I saw as the actress. Yeah. That I was not actually connecting with. Yeah. Yeah, so I don't know what my personal rituals, if any, would be. Like I said, I don't really even um, think about my mom in, like, when I'm awake. Mm -hmm. But, uh, like, I, I see her often in my dreams. And the interesting thing is that in a lot of these dreams, it's a very emotionally intense reunion with my mom. Mm -hmm. And it's a very emotionally intense grieving and crying and yeah. all of that stuff that other people did in awake life yeah. and I had <laughs> no <life>. clue about <laughs> yeah. and I'm just doing in my dreaming life Yeah. and uh, I don't know I wake up from this and I'm like Neil what the fuck are you what is going you're, on you're, you're grief <laughs> yeah. dreaming you're yeah. I, I mean but that's it sounds to me like that's just yeah you're grieving so like, for that's me your that, that is style. that is the thing that's like okay so if there was supposed to be any value to a ritual to actually process this grieving, then that's what has been happening to me in these very personal dreams. Yeah. And I yeah. do think that, of course, like communal rituals are not for everybody. And I understand that like yeah. sometimes, especially I think when you, when it is so close to you, I think the tr traumatic experience because it is so close like I think when I think about losing my parent I think I would I would feel this a similar way like everything's just happening I'm just existing I'm having aunt so-and-so call me that I don't even know who this is and it's it's it does seem in a way like a production you know, like when you have to gather everything and you have to plan and like it sure is expensive, you know, mm -hmm. to deal with uh, funeral costs and, and things like that. So it's a lot of 
planning and it's a lot of like it's an event and I almost think of it as like as much work as a wedding yeah you know like a like a traditional wedding because you're having mm-hmm. to notify everybody you're having to send out invi- you know in, not invitations but like um like information of where we're meeting and where the body will be and mm-hmm. if you know I don't know it just it's very um, organized. Yeah, and systematically it's, it's this company now. There's a company that you pay, and they come and deal with the body, and yes. they just do this thing. Yeah, and goes through the pipeline of. Yeah, it's kind of like disconnecting for yeah. me. It's like. It it totally yeah. is. Um, and another thing that I like, I'm going back to a couple of points. Um, mm. I think it's interesting that we're working in a world where cultures are kind of blending and uh i guess not so i don't want to say isolated but like segregated i just want to say we're integrating cultures more um and going back to like the systematic structure of dying like how many days off do you get in a job when you lose somebody you know some some businesses are like three days you get three days off and after that you have to take vacation time sick time how the hell are some people going to grieve in three days do you know what i mean Mm -hmm. like grieving looks so different but then we also like on top of the funeral industry we have our own other systematic things that like they're not even connected to the funeral industry that say Three days, three days off is what we're going to give you. Like, that's crazy. That is so crazy. And I don't, I mean, of course, I don't have, like, a solution to that. But I just kind of wanted to get you thinking about that and all of the other, like, systematic. So think about, like, when you are thinking about why we're so removed. Look at all of the things we have in place that we can't change. You know, you're not going to not take a job because they only give you three days of, yeah. of leave. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, bereavement is just, for yeah. some people, they might need longer than that. And um, anyways, I just wanted to go back and point yeah. like all but of now the... now that you're saying all of these things, I'm starting to feel like, yeah, I mean, capitalism does have a lot to do with our uh, connection with death. So much yeah. more than you think. Yeah. And so, I mean, I grew up in a country which was not as capitalistic as the U.S. is, so I feel like you're kind of, like, allowed to connect more immediately with this process of death and take your time and, you know, be there to hear it, see it, feel it, and it's not, it's not like this commercial death corp where, like, people come in and they do the thing and it's, Seriously, it's, yeah, it's so different, right? Um, death is not good news for capitalism actually so reminders of that are not really good for business <laughs> oh <laughs> god this thing? everything's gonna end yeah how much are you gonna buy yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's one way of looking at it for sure um yeah but there's there's lots of lots of systematic things that are already in place and somewhat out of your direct control, I guess, um, that impact 
death. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, yeah. Yeah. You said that you wanted to talk a little bit about the realization mm-hmm. of death. Mm-hmm. Like the point at which people realize that they're going to die. Yeah. Um, so, this is something that I would like to study. I'm not quite sure how. I haven't studied it already. Um, but I want to talk about your experience, and I'll just talk about... Well, I guess I've kind of t- I've already touched about it, but I genuinely did not realize I was going to die until my friend died mm. uh, in high school. Mm. And it's not that... It's not that I didn't, like know that I was going to die. I was just not like, it wasn't, it's hard to put into words, (laughs) but that's when it really hit where I was like, yeah. Oh yeah. It didn't like percolate. Yeah. Yeah. Which is crazy to me. Like, I mean, you have to have that moment of realization, but I was 17. Yeah. That seems like a long time, 17 years for me to realize that, like, I'm going to die, you know? But I want to know your experience with that, Um, yeah, when you came to that realization that you were or were not going to die. Oh, yeah. I mean, first I I realized that I am going to die. Okay. (laughs) We'll talk. I want to know about that first. Yeah. So, like I said, I've had this, like, kind of very intense relationship with... Death, like so far I talked about what my relationship is with other people dying. Yeah. But um, this is kind of like a weird story. So when I was, let's see, I think I was like in my early to mid-teens. I used to have, okay, this is how it would always start. It would either start with me thinking about who I am. I've never been comfortable with well, not until recently, mm-hmm. with this just kind of abiding mystery of I don't know who I am. I mean, there are these labels that I know, like I'm Neil and blah, blah, yeah. whatever, but I don't know what I'm like really inside, who is perceiving this world, yeah. what is this? And somehow those questions of who I am are always connected to questions of my death. Because who I am is what is going to die. So this question of the fear of my death was very strongly interlinked to who I thought I was because it was basically the fear made me contract into who I thought I was and I wanted to never die. So were you at all thinking about what others would perceive of you after you died at this point? No, no, not at all. This is just, this was just my pure fear of me stopping to exist. Okay. And so I would just, you know, I would, I would, it would usually start with me just like thinking about who I am or seeing my own reflection in the mirror. And then it would be like a sequence of gradually accelerating thoughts and visions Mm -hmm. until it would feel like some part of my mind would open, like a door would burst open that I could no longer keep shut. And I would be flooded with visions of what would happen after I died. I was not on, on any drugs or anything. I had never been. And I grew up in a pretty secular family. I hadn't been really told yeah. uh, what to expect. But I would have these visions and these senses of what would happen after I die. It was basically like um, 
I would lose my individuality and merge with something where everything else that's going to die is merged as well mm-hmm. uh, into some like big cosmic single consciousness or something like that. And Neil would stop existing mm-hmm. as a separate Neil. And the, one of the like actual visuals I had was like, it was like a stream of light that's flowing through dark space and kind of reuniting with this huge like ball of light and there are like many other streams of light just coming in. And once you merge with that ball of light, that stream of light that was separate is completely gone. Its entire identity and separateness is dissolved. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was very scary for me because I didn't want my separateness or whatever my individuality to just stop existing. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I used to have like these recurring um, events that I didn't really tell anyone about. I blogged about it, yeah. but they were kind of traumatic experiences and I felt like it was coming from this part of my mind where I wasn't even thinking those thoughts. It was as if I was just on the receiving end of a channel of con- communication that was just telling me what was going to happen yeah. uh, after I die. So that was then and then many years have passed and I would say that now my relationship with my own death has become a lot better um, and in fact many times in my life I have taken deliberate steps towards the dissolution of this separateness that I feel um, this, this separateness that I feel is also the fear of death um, and I feel like, yeah, I don't think I'm entirely over my fear of death yet, yeah. but definitely a lot of what I saw in the past is like a traumatic thing. Yeah. Being, oh, you're not endless, you're not separate, you're not whatever, has actually become kind of like a good news for yeah. me. Um, and I noticed that the more of that separateness that I overcome, the more of that fear of dissolution that I overcome, the better my life becomes. Yeah. Um, and yeah, and my latest <laughs> realization is that, uh, that the separateness has, I don't, I don't really want to get into this too much, <laughs> that, but the, the, the separateness is after all an illusion and that nothing actually is going to die. Yeah, the separateness is going to change, but when we think of death, we think of transition from this world of happenings, people moving, you know, colors, flowers, blooming, sounds, etc. to like a world of nothingness. For some people. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, for some people. That's what I used to read in the past. Mm-hmm. And I don't believe that anymore. I think that what might happen at the point of death is some abrupt transition to some other conscious experience, which might be completely disconnected from this experience. Meaning that world of conscious experience that starts might have no memory of this. Okay. In that sense, it might be identical to a, I don't know, a baby being born. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, but yeah, I don't really want to get into this too much, but I feel like death is a, kind of like a fiction, at least in the ways that we imagine it. Uh, nothingness is not something that exists by its very definition. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, so there are, I mean... So we're just talking about the actual, I guess, 
not process of death, but just we're talking about death up until like uh, the beating heart and shortly after, but from our perspective of like the people still alive, uh, but variation in afterlife beliefs is so wide across very, you know, many cultures and individuals. Um, and part of what I think is fascinating, because to me, after that point of my death, how the hell am I supposed to know what happens? Like, I, there's nothing that I can be so confident about um, that, like, I'll, I'll slap my name on it and say, you know, <laughs> that, you know, I believe that this is what, what is going to happen. Um, but there are many people that have like a really strong belief in a certain type of afterlife, whether that's being reincarnated into another form in the same world, being reincarnated in a different world that looks, you know, X type of way, or, um, you know, being reborn or going up to heaven. And, mm. you know, there's just, just listening to all of the stories and like of the afterlife is so interesting to me. Um, and I also think that I don't feel the need to make a decision, you know, of like, yeah. I feel like sometimes people uh, have to slap, you know, commit to something and be like, well, this is what I said when I was 20, and this is what I'm going to say, this is what I'm going to teach my children, we're going to go to heaven, and, like, that's that, and part of that comes with, like, faith and, you know, religion and, and things like that, but um, I find it very refreshing, and I think it's really helpful for me to not feel like I need to slap a label or, like, commit, you know, to a certain type of afterlife belief. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, so, but you, so you don't believe either that it's just going to be nothingness. You just don't have any beliefs whatsoever. Yeah, I just, so, and this is something, because I feel like I'm always studying what people believe, right? And I'm studying the different types of afterlife, and people are explaining to me these, like, visions of light, or, you know, my after... 72 hours after my heart stops beating, I'm going to do this. And I like, I think it's interesting in ways that I don't have a story like that. Like I don't, if you ask me what was going to happen when I was going to die right now, I'd be like, well, shit, I don't know. <laughs> like I'm not in it. I find it interesting that I study. I feel like I have open access to a whole huge library of afterlifes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But my own book is not in there because I'm it's like, probably well, good. yeah, it I'm... probably gives you a, a kind of like a, a reporter's. I'm a open like, to everything, yeah, like, oh, anything not... and everything. I'm like, yeah. maybe. Yeah. <laughs> and and when that if if when I die, what you think happens, I'll, I'm gonna come back and get your autograph, and I'm be like, <laughs> oh shit, he predicted it. But yeah, like it's just yeah. there's so much rich variation and I'm just yeah like I'm just listening and gathering all of these things but I'm still not like I still don't have an opinion yet formed but I also don't know if I even want to have one yeah do you um, have any fear associated with your no and have never had any um I think when I realized I would die there was like a sudden I don't know I don't want to say that I've ever been scared because like mm. 
I don't know. Like, my perspective is just, it's just not going to eat. I'm going to be dead. <laughs> so, like, why, as long as I'm living the life that I want to live, that we're able to know about now, like, my future self can handle, or my afterlife self can handle what comes next. Like, I want to be in the present. Yeah. Right now. Yeah. Um, so, I don't think that I've yeah. ever really been scared of it, mm. of, like, my own death. Mm. Um, no, I don't think... I see. I don't think I've But you did say that it. when you, I don't know, kind of get in your head too much about certain things or get stressed, you're like, oh, remember, you're gonna die. Yeah. You know? So yeah. What, what, is, what is the sentiment of that? Because for some people, that sentiment um, is meant to evoke certain feelings. Yeah. For example... For some people, it's meant to evoke a sense of urgency yeah. about the fact that you're alive now and do certain things. For some people, it's like, oh, you're going to die anyway. Therefore, all of these stresses don't matter because big daddy stress is going to come and wipe everything yeah. out, which is just <laughs> complete annihilation. Yeah. So why are you worrying about this? Yeah. Um, but when you say, like, remember, you're going to die, what exact sentiments are evoked? So be I think this is because I don't have a set formed belief right that i am like fully committed to so because that's so unclear i have no idea what's gonna happen after we die like is there just nothing i don't know is there you know all of the different scenarios that could happen no idea and i feel like because part of how i want to live now is just in the moment and I want to, I don't know, get myself out of, like, this culture of being worried about so many little things and just being, like, a cog in the machine. I, like, I just, I want to be an independent, like, floater that doesn't yeah. really get stuck in the cogs of yeah. performance and, like, outward stuff. I want to worry about, like, me. This is my life and i that yeah. sounds so selfish no, 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 but I like what you, uh, what you mean you want to stay authentic to yes your, yes like, i want to be authentic and, inner, yeah. and i think part of like society is just a huge cloud of like be busy be productive and yeah. like if you're not doing that you're not performing and it's like performing for what yeah performing for who yeah like you're gonna die yeah <laughs> exactly <laughs> um <laughs> See, that's where we come back with the connection between capitalism and death. Yes. Is For me, like, a lot of this capitalism machine is this mirage of, like, you just got to keep doing this. Yes. Keep it. And anything that challenges the notion of, well, why do we got to keep doing that? Why is that so important? Just forget about it. Because I, I feel like, so, I feel like sometimes people are stuck in that machine mm. and... They don't ever question it, I guess, and that's like just their, you know, that's just their routine and their life. Um, but I think if they were to question some things, maybe that would open up some doors. Maybe it wouldn't, but I'm just saying maybe their lives would have been different had they been like, you know what, there's nothing I can do about it. I'm not going to stress about it because... I don't know, like, in the grand scheme of things, I don't want to freak myself out about something. So, like, if I miss, if, you know, because 
again, there's just like so much pressure on performing. And at the end of the day, I'm like, who cares? Like literally who cares? I mean, just do what you want to do within like confines of obviously you have responsibilities and shit, but like, I don't know. I just, I think it's so easy to just like be in the cogs and just not ever question anything and like maybe not reach like a capacity that you're able to reach. Right. Um, so yeah, but yeah. So sometimes when I'm like, if I start to feel stressed about this, I'm like, you know what? Let me take a step back. I'm going to die anyways. And I like to think about like, not even I'm going to die anyways, but in a week, am I even going to remember this? How can I, how can I take all of the energy I have in my anxiety and stress and how can I put that into something that is like more productive or beneficial for me for a way that works for me? And this looks different for everybody. I'm not saying that it works. This is just like my way. So I find myself stressed about an exam. Take a step back. Mm -hmm. Who cares if I, if I fail the exam, like what's going to happen to like think of, it helps that I think about these things. Um, and remember that I'm going to die. <laughs> yes. Um, but it really, yeah, it's, it's something that I use, uh, a lot just to like put things into perspective of like, I don't know, the overall shebang that we're, <laughs> that we're in. Um, but yeah, like, do you, when you're, when you are, how often do you get stressed and when you get stressed, do you try, like, how do you kind of get out of a stressful funk if you're ever in those? Yeah, that's a good question. I feel like I used to get stressed much more yeah. in the past. And uh, for the last several years, I started meditating. Okay. And that has immensely helped with my stress. Yeah. I feel like I don't really get, yeah, a fraction as much stressed or anxious awesome. as I used to yeah. in the past. But when I do get stressed, yeah, I mean, I still do get stressed every once in of a while. Of course. And um, I notice that then there is a battle between two parts of my mind. Mm-hmm. One part of the mind that's just stressed and just wants to be stressed yeah. and feel uncomfortable. And it's just, you know, flitting around from one thing to another because I can't focus on any one thing very much. Yeah. Like, oh my God. Yeah. Oh my, God. oh my God. Oh my God. And then the other part of my mind is like, dude. You've been through this so many yeah. times. You know what is at the end of the story? Yeah. Because it's going to pass. Yeah. You know? And so it's like the mindful, watchful part. But in some of the stressful situations, it's not un- it's not clear which side wins. Yeah. Um, well, because some yeah. stress is, like, functional, right? So it's like... It's like a curve and I can, I can see when my stress is functional and we're going up the curve. And, like, mm-hmm. once I get to the peak that's when I start catastrophizing and like, Mm -hmm. that's where the meltdown comes and I'm just like, Oh my God, Oh my God, Oh my God. So before I get to that peak of my stress, that's when I like to say this, like, let's take this with a grain of salt. Let's step back from the situation. Um, just because I would rather channel that energy that I would have spent. Oh my God. Oh my God. Catastrophizing into like, 
something that would fix the problem. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, let's work on a strategy or like, let's do something fun. Let me go make something or, you know, take my dogs out, whatever. Yeah. Um, but it's hard to do that. And the, the bump isn't always like super clear <laughs> of like where that, I guess, threshold hits. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, one thing that I do do is like, I just stop doing what I'm doing and I just let time. Let it simmer, yeah, just... Yeah, because the stressful mind is like, I gotta do something about this. It is. But it's like a headless chicken, doesn't know what to do about exactly. it. Exactly. And so, if I refer back to my historical experiences, I'm like, if you just do nothing and let time pass, yeah. the situation changes. A lot of the time, the situation that changes is not the external situation, it's the internal yeah, situation. Yeah, it's just you yeah, in and your own head. As the internal situation changes to something m more peaceful, your perception of what the external situation is has also radically changed. Yeah. Like, oh, this is not such yeah. a big deal. Yeah. <laughs> you know? So sometimes it's like just let the chemical reactions, you know, work themselves out yeah. inside your brain. Just They'll wait. stop bubbling eventually and then you'll yeah. just, yeah. Um, yeah. But it's, I don't know, especially I think not even just as a graduate student, just the society that we are in right now is, is a very stressed, invoking, yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. environment. Um, yeah. So, one thing that I noticed is when I went to Mexico, mm -hmm. um, when I came back from Mexico after having spent some time in Mexico, on the day that I came back from Mexico, I had this sharp feeling that when I came into the United States, I could tell that all of the faces that I was seeing were significantly more stressed and seemed preoccupied really? than what I was experiencing in Mexico. Um, now, I don't know if this is because I was you know, kind of, I went there to vacation, so basically I was hanging around in the places where people were also kind of enjoying themselves and yeah. everything. But I do think that there is some cultural difference in between what I saw. Okay, so what is a value in Mexican culture is a little bit different than what is a value in the U.S. culture. And mm -hmm. I feel like when I was in Mexico, I got the sense that you know, just kind of like living life and enjoying life and having community and celebrating all of that um, is not considered as much like a waste of time mm -hmm. in the Mexican culture. Yeah. Whereas like things like career and things like that are kind of more heavily emphasized in the U.S. Yeah. And I think that ends up having a very tangible effect on the inner lives of people. It and affects your biology. Faces. It affects your biology. Yeah. Um, so going back to... I guess the my studying cultural variation like from a mechanistic you know perspective a lot of the yeah. things like when we're measuring status that looks different everywhere yeah. right like status in America might be you know your job the number of items that you have a lot of like material things whereas in other cultures it might be the number of livestock that you have yeah. the number of children that you have so just imagine how that just shapes one's perspective yeah. on 
their whole being, really. Um, so yeah, like, it is so fascinating when I come across challenges in doing cross-cultural work because I think about things that I would have never thought about. And I feel like it provides me with a perspective that I'm, like, very lucky to be able to have. Um, but, yeah, like, wealth looks so different in many societies. Like, even across Western cultures, it looks very different sometimes. Um, yeah, like, number of children matters. And it's it's really, I don't know, it just kind of shapes, I mean, obviously it shapes your attitudes and your beliefs. But, like, ultimately your behavior and your biology, like, there are... <laughs> Yeah. effects of stress right yeah. and I would love I don't I don't know any science or data behind this but like I would love to compare a culture that's like in a high stress environment well I guess maybe it is stressful for both environments to, to just look at the environments and compare levels of stress and like how mm. that affects I mean that's not my research but mm. <laughs> um and I'm sure there's data out there but uh yeah it lo- it's very different yeah. across and has lots of and effects. how those things connect to their perceptions of death yeah so. yeah um mm. yeah because some people have really explicit beliefs about like what happens to the body in regards to biology mm. but then sometimes at the same time or exclusively, they have like supernatural beliefs about the body. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, like I said, sometimes, like, I feel like I have a biological belief about like what physically happens to the body and like, you know, all of the processes stop and blah, blah, blah. But like, my supernatural, like, it's still on the table. It's still there for me to, you know, yeah. as an option. Um, and I feel like they could exist in my head at the same time. Yeah. Um, but it's interesting when people give explanations about, like, why people die. Some people refer to the biology. Some people refer to supernatural aspects. Some people refer to both. And sometimes they exist, like in harmony and sometimes they're conflicting and it's interesting to see yeah just the variation yeah, yeah. in that see when you bring that up i feel like i don't necessarily see a conflict in those two beliefs mm-hmm. because i feel like they're not talking about the same domain mm-hmm. um so the biology is what what is being talked about is kind of the world of objective measurable phenomena yeah. is what is happening to the biology of the body whereas the supernatural beliefs are mostly about what is your internal subjective experience going to be like when you die to me these are the same difference as a person says oh i saw paul paul um paul's eyes were streaming with tears and his face was twisted up and Paul mm-hmm. could say, I was having a really bad time, I was feeling anxious, and you know, blah, blah, blah. So these are two descriptions of the same thing, but from different perspectives. One is from the outsider's perspective of what was physically happening with Paul's body. The other is Paul's internal subjective experience of him like going through a bad time. Yeah. 
So I feel like the thing that people are really interested in is not so much what is going to happen to their body after they die, because they feel like you know they're no longer going to be in that yeah. body, but what is going to happen to their internal subjective experience. Yeah. So the biology can exist and the science can exist, but I feel like to me that's not a complete picture of what is being talked about. Yeah. It's the outsider's perspective of a of death. Yeah. Whereas the supernatural is like the perspective on what is going to happen from the first person. So, I do agree with you there, um, and there are other aspects of health, and I'm trying to think of like a specific example, um, but I have done research on like uh, pregnant women, um, and kind of like the rituals that revolve around the maternal period, um, and sometimes... A mother, when we ask, like, why did you uh, take these iron folic acid tablets? Or why did you not take the tablets? So let's go with why, why they took them. Uh, some of them will say that they took them uh, for, like, their actual purpose. So, like, to increase IFA, <laughs> you know, uh, consumption because they're not able to get it through, like, nutrition. Uh, and then some of them will say, so that way I have like better blood flow. So my baby will have, I don't know, better skin or something. So those are like two beliefs that are coexisting. Right. And then some people, some mothers report not taking the tablets because they might believe that iron and folic acid is good for, you know, their pregnancy and have like a biological belief, but they end up not taking, you know, or act, engaging in whatever health behavior because of some so sort of like supernatural belief. So that's kind of what I meant by like, mm -hmm. sometimes they're oh, existing at the same time. And even though I'm aware of the biological impact, I'm still not going to do the whatever behavior because mm -hmm. I don't want evil eye, oh. you know, like mm -hmm. hovering over me or, you know, do, there's a bunch of different aspects, but that's what I meant yeah. um, when I said that. And that's the first example that came to mind. But, uh, but yeah, I do agree with you um, and your points. Um, yeah. I'm trying to think of, there's like another example. I can't think of it on the spot mm. though. Wait, is this something that you study? Yes. Well? Yeah. So, um, generally I'm interested in, in applying my research into mm. some sort of service that directly helps others mm. in the fields of education and health. So like if I had to have my widest umbrella or cast my largest net, that would be it. Um, specifically, I'm interested in like um, parent-led education. Um, and I don't mean like homeschooling, I just mean like parent involvement in learning over many topics, science topics, death topics, health topics, any sort of topics, but how parent 
and child interacts to have these, I don't know, conversations and like what are the factors that go into parent deciding, right? Because it's usually one way. It's not like a conversation. So what is parent thinking about when they're engaging with their child? How can we improve that conversation? How do parents even know what's appropriate for kids? Or like, what do they not think is appropriate? Um, I'm interested in those. Um, And then also just service delivery in general um, within health and education. Uh, So like, um, just educating people about like the uncomfortable as it is topic um of death and dying like planning for it like unfortunately we do live in a system that it's very controlled and like it it does involve planning um because there are so many steps that you have to take when somebody dies like formal steps that you have to take that like i think it's important that you at least have conversation about who's gonna deal with that stuff because otherwise it's a lot of stress on the people that have to go through all of that on yeah. top of their grieving, yeah. right? Yeah, I'm going to <laughs> Yeah, well, well, yeah. well, and that's, that's one way to look at it, too. Yeah. I'm, like, biting myself right there. But, um, uh, but, yeah, I do think that if there's a way to just, like, facilitate more conversation or something. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I'm just imagining like <laughs> this attitude of like who cares yeah. what happens after I die. What if like immediately after death I'm reincarnated simultaneously as all the people that have to deal with the body? I'm like, oh, that's what happens. That's what and happens. I'm like, damn, I did say it was a future Hannah problem. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, so, anyways, that's that's kind of, I guess, what I'm. I don't know. Most interested in like applying my findings otherwise like what am I yeah. like, nobody's gonna interpret my <laughs> results and yeah. and my the people that I actually want to help not that I don't want to help other academics do great research but um, I really want to make sure that the work that I'm doing is getting to the people that I'm trying to target <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah so it's noon. I have like a couple of concluding questions. Yeah. If you still have time. Yeah. 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 Is it actually like noon noon or yeah, is it like twelve fifteen? It's twelve. Oh, that's fine. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so one thing that you brought up that I found interesting mm-hmm. was that death affects our past, present, and future. Mm-hmm. Will you tell me a little bit more about what? That yeah. So. I think that because we live in a society that has made death a very taboo topic, um, it really helped me, I guess, develop my interest and, like, research, I guess, research interests and just life interests in general when I thought about, okay, especially when you're deciding to study a topic you want to make sure, like, is this a really narrow topic? You know, like, how am I going to use this? So I took a step back, and I was like, you know, death is really just one day for one one person. Like, that was my first mm-hmm. initial um, thought. Mm-hmm. And then I said, well, no. 
you have to, there's a bunch of grieving that goes on. You know how many people will die in your lifetime. That's a lot of grieving <laughs> that you're doing. Um, so I have to grieve the past. Not only that, but I have to deal with indirect death. So kind of, I don't grieve when I hear about somebody dying in another state or even like, I don't know, some person got hit by a car or something, but I, I'm exposed to that. That's just the world mm -hmm. that we live in, that we're constantly exposed to it on top of the realization that you're going to die. So what, wherever that happens in your timeline, that's another like present aspect of dying. Mm -hmm. And then also you have planning for your future, which happens during your lifetime, like in the present, but then you have the possibility of an afterlife or something, something after, whether that's nothing, but there is usually thought to be like a sequel, right? Like whatever that may look like. Um, so that's when I was like, wow, this is actually a lot more pervasive mm. than I originally thought. You know, mm. could you think of death and you're like, well, it's just one day. Yeah. <laughs> it's just someone dies and that's like their death date and that's it. Um, but when you think about how pervasive it is, and it might not be like at the forefront of your mind every day, and I hope that it's not. <laughs> it's mm. not. Um, but it's very pervasive. And so when I when I tell people that, you know, Death and dying does affect more, I think, than you've thought about. I think it's a way for people to, I don't know, kind of like break down any barriers that they might have been feeling if they, I mean, and I don't want to like flood people with like if they do have a fear of death, but I don't know, just engage some more conversation and get people thinking about it a little yeah. bit more in kind of like a more digestible way. I think if I explain to people what I just explained here, it's like, okay, I understand the work that you're doing. I understand, you know, some maybe I've formed some questions that I'd like to explore a little bit more. So I just want to get people like, I don't know, I think that's the easiest way for me to translate, I don't know, my, my passion, <laughs> I guess. Um, uh, so that way people understand. Because if I talk about like the ins and outs, people are gonna be like, "You lost me." <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. So yeah, I think I think putting it in that perspective is just really, I don't know, should make it feel like a really normal thing because it really is a normal thing. Mm -hmm. um, and maybe like break down the taboo aspects of it um, yeah. a little bit, just a little bit. <laughs> yeah. um, Speaking of taboo. Yeah. What are your thoughts on, what are your personal thoughts mm -hmm. on suicide or like even particularly assisted suicide? So... Do you think it's okay? Do you think... Yeah. So, I do think that autonomy is important. Um, so, I am... I feel like I have some sort of like internal conflict because... It is really, like, suicide is a very difficult topic, but I also do, um, what am I trying to say, like, resonate with the thought processes that might occur when someone is feeling suicidal, you know, if that makes sense. So, like, I am, um, I've never 
felt that way, but I've spoken to many people who have had similar thoughts and like the process, uh, I feel like I know a little bit about the thought process that gets someone into that state. Um, and I actually do, I'm interested in like suicide prevention research. So like, um, when someone expresses that they are suicidal, I would love if we had a magic concoction of like, I don't know, let's figure out, let's like tear these thoughts apart, you know, I mean, maybe that's like clinical stuff. (laughs) I'm not really sure because I don't, um, approach it from that, but I am interested in like how, when people get to that point, not that I don't think that we should have to stop it, but I would love for people to like really, I don't know. And this is also, this is so complicated and it's hard for me to like put in one sort of, um, plan, I guess. Um, but I guess my, my, my views on like assisted, uh, dying, um, I don't think that I, I don't see an, like an issue with it. If, if that's, um, like kind of what you were asking, uh, But I do think that when people find themselves uh, expressing, like, suicide or having suicidal thoughts or expressing intentions um, of of acting on that, I do think that, and I hope that there are ways that um, will eventually come up for some sort of, like, intervention not i don't want to make it seem yeah like dialogue where it's not such a taboo thing so maybe if it wasn't such a taboo thing people would be more open i would i'm you know there are tons of people that are willing like especially clinical workers uh in this area but i'm sure they have fabulous training but when people when it's such a taboo thing that people can't even express it like that just it rips my heart out, you know, cause it's like, well, maybe if things would have been this and then it's easy mm-hmm. to be like, well, what if, and what if, and what if, and what if, um, but yeah, so it's, it's kind of, I feel like my personal views are, are that I'm really passionate about suicide prevention, but at the same time, I recognize that I appreciate autonomy. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I, I feel like those are kind of not in conflict, but like sometimes they can be. Um, so yeah, those are, I think those are my opinions. Do you have, I don't know, like a certain, a similar or opposite? I think from, from hearing you talk about it, I feel like I'm like mostly in agreement. Yeah. Um, yeah, I feel like, you know, one of these things that we kind of hold as, a very sacred belief, kind of even in secular societies, is that life is intrinsically valuable, yeah. and that you should not kill yourself. There are some religions in which there are it's very explicit. Yes. It's like, well, if you kill yourself, you end up in hell and blah blah, etc. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, I would like to question that belief, and not have a person, you know be tormented because they don't want to stay alive anymore. Yeah. It's too painful, but they 
you're like, no, if I kill myself, it's going to be even worse or whatever. Yeah. You know. Um, so in place of that, I feel like I kind of agree with what you're saying. Mm-hmm. I would not. I think even though I don't really subscribe to that belief from a religious context that life is intrinsically valuable. Yeah. I still feel this kind of uh, like if some person. I knew that some person was contemplating suicide. I still feel that even though I'm kind of secular, not not religious, pretty much an atheist, that I still feel this impulse to like sit down and talk with them. Yeah. Um, and I think that comes from more of an impulse of you know that we all human beings share to lessen each other's suffering. Yeah. And you must have like some suffering going yeah. on. Yeah. And I agree with you that the way to go about it is not to condemn or to ridicule or to try and shut down or censor yeah. the thoughts that they're having about suicide. Because they're having it anyway. Yeah, and know? well, and there are changes that people can start to make to like facilitate these. So like um, saying that somebody committed suicide infers that it's a crime. Right? Like, if you're committing something, you're never committing something good, right? Like, there's a negative connotation just by saying somebody committed suicide. So, just saying died by suicide is, like, one word, you know, just a swap of just the language. And it takes away the negative connotation that you committed suicide and that's wrong and... A crime and you know you know what I mean like there's there's even making small changes like that Mm -hmm. can facilitate or like make people realize that it's like these thoughts do happen you know and um, and I I think that's something important to to recognize especially I mean you don't know who who is listening to this or who is um, who's been affected by somebody who's died by suicide, right? And imagine if if you or someone else was talking about one of your loved ones or your friends, your family, whoever, and said that they were committing, committing, committing. That's, yeah. it's like, it's tough, tough to hear um, because you're like, well, they didn't, they didn't do anything wrong, you know? And it's, it's a, I don't know, simple, easy change, um, I think that can, I mean, it's not going to fix everything, but yeah. uh, I think it's important for the way you frame frame the conversation, uh, even. Uh, yeah, that's something that I, I try to point out every time mm-hmm. somebody says that, I say, well, you know, let's, it's, it's not been a crime that they've uh, decided to take action on, on that. And so why don't next time, you know, you just, you change the way you say this to so-and-so died by suicide, just out of, you know, respect and, and, uh, and that, but yeah. Yeah. Cool. I think, um, blah, 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 blah. Yeah. I think I've asked you, you've, you've hit pretty much all the topics. Sweet. That we wanted to, and I really appreciate that you also asked me questions. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, to as well. because you did express interest in it, like I don't get, this is a tough stop, uh, topic to study mm-hmm. and anybody who's will, willing to like let me hear their thoughts about 
you know, something that might be very personal or um, something I'm very appreciative because it's not something that I frequent. <laughs> I don't have the opportunity a lot of the time or sometimes it like I really enjoy that you've thought about this for a long time and you have a lot of these thoughts and opinions and it's it's very rich so the conversation was able to be uh really great um because yeah we we yeah. overlapped in that yeah. way but yeah this was fun yeah, yeah. <laughs> um cool thanks for joining us today in the room of lives hope to see you again later Thank you.